I guess I have to warm up the audience while the projector warms up. Um, some of you were here last time I spoke, some of you were not. We are tracing a theme through the book of John. John's gospel is unique in the New Testament. It deals with issues and events and characters that no other gospel seems to partake of. And uh, I've always been fascinated by, the, by John. I think I talked to Willis the other night about how John has a very simple uh, form of the Greek language, and most introductory courses in Greek uh, use the Gospel of John to, to teach the students how to read uh, Greek first because the language is so simple. But as you get into it, the language becomes still simple, but it's a deeper, deeper thought process going on than it normally meets the eye. And so we're, tra- we're trying to paint some pictures that are going on in the Gospel of John. I was so pleased with the uh, way Willis handled uh, Genesis chapter 3, because what John does in the first part of his Gospel, he compares or links his Gospel with the book of Genesis. And we know that because the first opening words of the book of John and the book of Genesis are exactly the same. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So there was someone else there at the beginning, and that's what his whole argument is. And he continues on in the Gospel of John in the first uh, two chapters. We ended up at the wedding feast at Canaan of Galilee. And I suggested to you the last time that John is giving us a new creation week. Uh, in the, uh, J- uh, John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, after three days. Well, if you count back from the end of John 1.18 to the after three days, you realize that there's a total of seven days going on and that the wedding feast actually happens on the seventh day. And so that gives us a, a connection. And then we have the encounter between Jesus and a woman, And we all understand the woman to be the mother of Jesus, but she's not named. And the last time we saw in a scripture where a woman was called woman and not uh, named was back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. John is making connections between Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and his new gospel. It's a new creation week. It's got a new Adam, and the new Adam is looking and searching for a new Eve. Uh, Instead of Adam naming the animals, the new Adam names the disciples. You shall be called Peter, because upon this rock I shall build my church. Uh, So you have all these allusions and connections uh, going on between the uh, first account in Genesis and the second account of the new creation in uh, the Gospel of John. The, these events happened at Beit Barah, uh, and uh, Alan and I were talking about that. It, it doesn't read exactly the same in one of the translations, but Beit Barah, in uh, the location name, the geographical name that John gives, is a, just a loose translation for Beit meaning house in Hebrew and Barah meaning creation. So he's connecting the first creation against the new creation. 
So we talked a little bit about that. We talked about how uh, Eve, the second Eve, namely in the person of his mother, instead of disobeying Adam like uh, uh, we talked about in the first message, uh, she tells the other servants in the wedding feast, you obey everything he tells you to do. And as a result, we come and develop another major theme, which is replacement. So in John chapter 2, the joy of the wedding feast replaces the ceremonial provisions of the law. And one of the major themes that we're dealing with in the book of John is how uh, only the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now today, and I don't want to stand in front of the slide, I need to get that slide in a bigger uh, proportion here. Let me... I am technologically challenged, by the way. As one of my students said, when you have a fight with IT, IT usually wins. Okay, can you read that? If you can't read it, move up. <laughs> the Women of the Gospel of John, Chattanooga Kingdom Conference, uh, 2016. This is sequence number six. John divides his, uh, his book into sequences. They're very, very well defined. They're defined as chiastic structures, one chiastic structure after another. And we are now in sequence six rather than the, new, the, uh, the wine of the new covenant replacing the ritual water cleansing of the old covenant. We are now at the place where living water replaces well water. And this is a very familiar passage of uh, the lady at the well, the woman at the well. Now, I'm going to ask you to indulge me here, and I'm going to actually read the scripture or have the slide of the scripture in front of uh, you and me before we make comment on. So we're at John chapter 4, verse 4. It says, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Yeshua, which of course I explained is Jesus' real name, therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now notice here in the underlining, John introduces the theme of gift in this verse. It was Jacob's gift to his son Joseph that we're dealing with here or being talked about. There is a city called Sychar. It has been identified with Askar, a small Samaritan town on the southern base of Ebal, about a mile to the north of Jacob's well in Israel in the present day. It was about the sixth hour of the day. This we would call high noon. This tells us something about the reputation of the unnamed lady. She took advantage of the heat of the day to avoid any shunning behavior from the other women in the village and hurtful conversation. Usually the community well is where fellowship among the ladies occurred. We were so pleased, the men were so pleased last night when all the ladies gathered in fellowship at the next table and we had to kind of tear them away so we could get, go home and get some sleep. But... Uh, it's one of the joys of this conference is the fact that you can sit and have fellowship with each other 
and not be critical or not be judgmental and anything like that and not say, well, you're a heretic, you don't believe the way I do, something like that. So ladies had a time that they got together at the well and it was usually in the cool of the day in the evening. But this lady is coming for her, fill her water container at high noon. So she's, uh, it hints to us that she's shunned by the rest of the community. In verse 4, it says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Notice in verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Now, that is not a geographical necessity, so there must be another meaning going on. Notice that this impersonal verb always means that it is part of the divine plan. So we see in John 3, 7, 14, 30, 4, 4, 4, 20, 4, 24, 9, 4, 10, 16, 12, 34, uh, 20, verse 19. Whenever we see he must do something, that means that God has already ordained that and he is just working out in his present experience the part of the divine plan. So he had an appointment in Samaria. I think there was a novel written with that uh, title. He had an appointment in Samaria and he was going there to meet a new potential bride. We talked about how God the Father is interested in taking a bride for his son to provoke his first wife who he set aside to jealousy. And so the interest here is that Jesus knew what he was doing. He was knowing uh, because of his foreknowledge and he had it tells us earlier on in John's gospel he had the ability to read minds which always we just kind of blow that away when we read through the scriptures but Jesus knew what was in the heart of man and uh, what people were thinking and what they needed and so he had this necessity to go uh, to Samaria now Jesus sat down at the well John introduces the idea of labor into this section. Jesus was tired from his journey. Jesus actually got tired. So if you got tired, don't feel guilty. Jesus walked this earth the same as we did in a human body, subject to all the vicissitudes that uh, we are subject to. Now, the interesting thing to me from a thematic point of view is that many Bible scenes happen at wells. Moses found his wife at a well. Eliezer found a bride for Isaac at a well. Here Yeshua is looking for a bride as well for the wedding in the kingdom, which we talked about yesterday. The well is used in the prophets as a metaphor for salvation. Two words are used here. One is spring and the other is well. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And then we have a parenthetical comment by John the writer. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then another parenthetical comment, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This form of question implies a possibility. It's impossible that you would ask me for a drink. He was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. He was a man and she was a woman. They were in a public place and her husband was not present. The parenthetical remark means literally that Jews and Samaritans don't drink out of the same utensils. According to the Talmud, talking to a woman 
was one of the six things forbidden for rabbis to do. Jesus was a rabbi. He was talking to a woman in a public place without her husband present. Very, very socially awkward situation. Now, uh, notice again John's use of the woman as a representative figure. First the mother of Jesus at the wedding, then the woman of Samaria here, then the woman taken in adultery in John 8, then Mary and Martha in chapter 11, then the mother of Jesus at the cross, finally Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb. She is not only a historical, literal character in the Gospel of John, she represents the Samaritan community. All of the characters, all of the female characters in John's Gospel represent potential brides for the Messiah. And so it's helpful to get that under control or get that in your head. There's a long history of of bigotry and hatred and hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. It goes back all the way to the time of the judges in Judges 6 through 9. Later, when Solomon's kingdom split, Samaria became the capital of the northern rebel kingdom. In 722 B.C., the city became half Jewish and half Gentile after the deportation of the ten northern tribes, which, by the way, have never, ever come back. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be ritually unclean and thus would not share vessels for eating or drinking. More than that, the woman was a woman, alone, with a questionable reputation. It was not appropriate to speak to a woman you did not know in a public place. The woman dismisses Yeshua because he's a Jew. Later on, this is the ironic part, later on in the book, the Jews dismiss Yeshua as a Samaritan. When I taught a message on the Good Samaritan, which I did last uh, conference, a lady told me that she had never heard that Yeshua was the Good Samaritan. Well, in John chapter 8, verse 48, it's where that connection is made. The the critics say, did we not say you have a demon and are a Samaritan? That was an insult, a ritual insult to uh, Jesus' uh, origin and personality. John the writer gets the disciples off the scene and the woman enters. Jesus is sitting at the well, tired from the long walk. The Samaritan woman is coming to draw water. His disciples have gone to town to buy food. That's the opening scene of the event. So that the Samaritan woman is surprised. Yeshua answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, but you don't, that's the implied meaning of the Greek, And who it is that says to you, give me a drink, but you don't, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our forefather Jacob who gave us as well, are you? This question expects the answer no. And it's ironic because, yes, he is greater than their father, Jacob. Now, the gift of God, if you had known the gift of God. The Bible is very clear about what is the gift of God. Acts 2.38, 8.20, 10.45. It is the Holy Spirit that Jesus is offering to the woman. It is the Holy Spirit that he wants to give her. So the woman is surprised. Yeshua starts at the physical level. Give me a drink. This is one of the first of the seven commands in this passage. 
Then he moves to the spiritual level, and you see that dichotomy going on all the time in John. Everybody's operating at the literal, physical level, and Jesus is operating at the spiritual, heavenly level. This is a familiar, he moves from the idea of the spiritual level of heavenly things, he introduces the idea of living water. This is a familiar idea from the Old Testament. Compare Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So the idea of living water is a current Old Testament idea that would be recognized by all the audience to whom John is writing. Jesus then explained that there are two kinds of water. Yeshua answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never ever thirst. For those of you who know Greek, that's an ume construction That means it's almost the absolute strongest way that you could state a negative in the Greek language. And I would exaggerate it by saying I shall shall give him, will never, ever, absolutely, now and forever thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up, resulting in everlasting life. Now, Yeshua points out the problem with her physical water, and that's the problem with all physical water. My wife is on my case all the time because uh, I don't drink enough water. She says, John sets a bottle of water before me. In fact, here she did this earlier today. She said, "Uh, before we leave the table today, you finish it. But the problem is that I'm going to have to drink another container of water later on in the day and another container of water and I just don't like the taste of water anymore. So a person who drinks physical water never really is satisfied. I mean, it can uh, make your body function for a day or a period of time, but you're never really satisfied. In contrast, then, if a person drinks the water that Yeshua gives, he will absolutely never, ever thirst again. As I said before, This is the force of the original language. It's the strongest way of making a negative statement. This water will become a fountain that can satisfy the thirst of others. This water will result in eternal life, which is really talking about resurrection life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not drink, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Aha, a potential bride without a husband. Yeshua said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Now, let me go on a tangent here, or go abstract on you, go theological on you. Finally, Yeshua has her convinced. He first asked her for a drink, now she asks him for a drink. But before the gift is given, the woman has a personal issue, the issue of sin. Yeshua tells her to go and bring her husband. She replies that she has no husband. At the literal level, and the title of this slide is The Problem of Too Many Husbands. At the literal level, the level of earthly things, Jesus said to Nicodemus, if I told you earthly things and you didn't believe it, how am I going to share with you heavenly things? 
At the literal level, earthly things, Jesus declares that she has had five husbands, five. And the one whom she uh, is living with now was not her husband. She is the prototype of the naughty lady of Shady Lane. Some of you are all old enough to remember that song. At the spiritual level, heavenly things, Jesus is making a statement about the Samaritans. They only believed the five books of Moses, and now their religion was a mixture of Judaism and paganism. So when he's saying you have five husbands, he's talking at both the physical level and the spiritual level. They were not fully aware of the prediction in the prophets which clearly protected, predicted the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Uh-huh. She's getting more insight. Our fathers, now, she sidetracks the issue of personal sin with a theological question. Um, children do that a lot. When you ask them to pray at night, uh, they will pray through all of the relatives. I had a, uh, I served a church where uh, the senior pastor had a cute grandson, and he said uh, they had prayed all through all of their relatives, and he said, trying to prolong his time awake, he said, and let's not forget about Brother John. So he included me in his prayer list so he he could stay up a little longer. So she comes up with a theological question. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Yeshua said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman thinks that Yeshua is a prophet. Interestingly, the Samaritans did not accept the prophets as inspired scripture. However, Deuteronomy 18.18 18 mentions a prophet like unto Moses who would arise in the last day. Her next question is, what is the place to worship? Which church building should I attend? There was a rival temple on the mountain at Samaria that rivaled the temple at Jerusalem. Notice the word worship is used ten times in this, sec- in this passage. And uh, we have some fuzzy ideas. I'm going to take a bunny trail now. We have some fuzzy ideas about what constitutes worship. Well, why do you go to church? Well, I go to church to worship. And most of the time that means I listen and sing with the, the song leader, very interesting and exciting music. We all get together and clap, and we go home and we say we worship God. But here's the takeaway from this message this morning. There is no acceptable worship without sacrifice. There is no acceptable worship without sacrifice. When Abraham went up the mountain of Moriah with his son Isaac, he was going to sacrifice him. He said to the servants that waited with the donkeys, he said, my son and I are going up the mountain to worship and we will return to you, thus believing in the resurrection of the dead. So an hour is coming, and you will see that we tend to forget 
that the New Testament calls on us to sacrifice, to present ourselves as living sacrifice. So even though Jesus offered the total sacrifice for us, yet there is a sacrifice of ourselves, there is a sacrifice of the fruit of the lips, there is a sacrifice of all things in the New Testament. The New Testament does not do away with the sacrifices of the believer. We present things to God, and that is worship. An hour is coming. This is mentioned many times in this gospel. It is the hour of Jesus' death on the cross, which would provide for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Out of the side of Jesus flowed blood and water. John 7:38 says this living water was the gift of the Spirit. So when the Roman soldier pierced his side, out flowed the blood of the atoning sacrifice, out flowed the water of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our forefathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim in Samaria. It used to have a rival temple until it was destroyed. Jesus said it was in Jerusalem that one must worship. Jesus said the hour is coming and now is that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The believer must receive the Holy Spirit to offer true worship. The believer must worship according to the truth. That's why we study the word. That's why we hear the preaching of the gospel, because we want to follow the order that God has. I sometimes get a little discouraged with uh, some of my Christian brethren because I've been under Jewish influence for a, a bit of time now. Do you all know what today is? Today is the Feast of Trumpets. The Jews believed that the Feast of Trumpets inaugurated the resurrection of the dead. So what are most Christian churches doing? They're preparing for Halloween. Is everybody okay with that? Yes. <laughs> uh, the believer must worship according to truth, and God has his appointed times, and God has, says, don't change my appointed times. So we, at least, if we do not celebrate the same way the Messianic Jews do, I think we ought to acknowledge in our church services when the whole uh, high holy days occur. Because God always does things according to his, his own calendar, not according to our calendar. Uh, John 1.17, only the law was given through uh, Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we have to listen to the truth, the, the spoken word, as Willis said, the word that was spoken by Jesus. Because he is not only the uh, spoke and lived the Torah, he is the living Torah. When the, the uh, woman that was taken uh, with the, the flow of blood, she reached out and touched the tassels. Those are called tzitzit in uh, Hebrew. And they were symbolic of the Torah. And in the center, there was a blue cord for the Messiah. So when she reached out and touched the edge of his garment, she was embracing Jesus as a living Torah. Now, salvation is of the Jews. And here we get into controversy. Uh, not in this venue, but in some church venues. The Bible talks about three kinds of salvation. The salvation of the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9, and that is non-reversible. There's no provision in the New Testament for getting rid of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The second is the salvation of the soul, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For those who are being saved, 
you are being saved in your earthly life as you daily present yourself as a living sacrifice, as you daily die to sin and, and become alive to God. And finally, the salvation of the body after resurrection. This is the future salvation that is spoken of in Hebrews 1.14. And there's a, one more interesting possibility here. Salvation is of the Jews. The reason that this is interesting is that the Jewish name of Jesus is Yeshua, which is equivalent to salvation. So he might be saying salvation is of the Jews, Yeshua is of the Jews. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to him, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no one to her said, what do you seek? Or to him said, what are you talk- why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this not be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food, my energy, my power is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. She knew that the Messiah was coming. She must have been exposed to some other teaching like that of John the Baptist. The Messiah that she was expecting would explain all things, heavenly things and earthly things. Yeshua reveals himself to the woman. I who speak to you am. This is the first occurrence occurrence of the I am formula in the book of John. Notice he is in italics. I who speak to you am. Not I am he. I am. So he's making a claim based in Exodus 3.14 to being the I am who I am deity of the Old Testament. Disciples return, but neither do they speak to Jesus or the woman. They are still bound by culture. She leaves her water pot behind, indicating that she had found the living water. She immediately returns to the village and noticed that she spoke to the men. She breaks the social norm just like Jesus did, and she starts the conversation with a mysterious question the same way that Jesus did. Could this possibly be the Christ? His disciples who had been on an earthly mission to get earthly food urged Jesus to eat. He replies that he had some secret food about which they didn't know. And again, Jesus is speaking spiritually and they misunderstood. Then Jesus explains that his source of energy is to do the will of the Father and finish his work of salvation. We're continuing on through the chapter. I hope you're following in your Bibles. The principle of the harvest. The harvest is a picture of the end of the age. Jesus asked the disciples, do you not say there are still four months and then the harvest? This expands the answer, yes. This saying may be a reference to the fruit harvest in September, which is about four months after Pentecost, a Shavuot, on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So Jesus is talking about the time from Pentecost, and I understand that uh, the occurrence of the Samaritan woman at the well happened on the day of Pentecost. It's very interesting. Jesus is showing us in the first half of uh, John's gospel, 
or John is showing us that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament types of the feast days. That's why I'm so interested in the feast days. So I think this all occurred on the Feast of Pentecost, and four months later would be the Feast of Tabernacles, and we all know that to be the kingdom feast when Jesus comes back in tabernacles with us and we in our new tabernacles that are given as resurrection bodies uh, fellowship with him. Jesus now elevates the conversation to heavenly things. He's talking about converts and the disciples are talking about physical fruits and grains. He who reaps receives wages. This is a basic principle. Anyone who does God's will will receive wages or rewards. The last verses of the Bible say, Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, or without warning, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And as I said, the first message, grace, all salvation is by grace, but all judgment is according to works. So there's a balance in Scripture between grace and works that we need to separate and divide the things that are different. He gathers fruit, uh, converts, for eternal life. Whoever responds to the message of Jesus as the Messiah receives eternal life or will receive eternal life when he is resurrected from the dead. The result of the fruit gathering is that the Messiah, he who sows and the disciples, he who reaps may rejoice together. Notice in Hebrews 1.9, therefore God, your God, has anointed you, the messianic king, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. <clears throat> the proverb, <clears throat> one sows and another reaps. Jesus is the sower, the disciples are the reapers. Others have labored, gotten weary, literally. This is the same word used in the opening sentences when it says Jesus was weary and on sitting on the well. This could be a reference to John the Baptist or Moses. These disciples enter into their work The ball is now in their court. And the ball now is in our court as well. Jesus met the woman at the well, and he gave her the living water. And it became in her a fountain that bubbled over. And she returned to her village, talked to the men as was not the social custom, defied the culture, and she gave them an intriguing question. Could this not be the Christ? Later on in the passage, the men say, now we have heard him talk for two days, not only to believe because of what you said, but we know that this is the Christ, the son of the living God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the encounter that we just talked about. Thank you that you give us living water that never shall run dry. Thank you that it's going to bubble up and lead us to the kingdom in an eternal life. Amen.